All right, we're going to now look at the scriptures together. So if you have a Bible, open your Bible to Titus. We're in the book of Titus, and the series is called Church is Not What You Think. Church is Not What You Think from the book of Titus. Titus is one of three letters that Paul wrote to his protégés, his, his young men in training that were leading churches, and he was like, this is how church should operate. If you don't have a Bible, go ahead and grab one of the black Bibles under the chairs, and you can turn to page 999 to find Titus chapter 1 there. Page 999 in the Black Bibles. We want to get you in the habit of opening it up. We believe that the Bible speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus himself. So we're going to spend time every week that we gather looking at the scriptures and trying to listen to Jesus' voice. As we talk about church not being what you think, you can see from the artwork that we have here that one of the primary mistakes we make is we think the church is the building rather than the people. And church is a spiritual reality. Church is the gathering of God's people who come together, who unify to do God's work in the world. Jesus's plan for the brokenness of the world is us. And I know that's scary. He's going to give us his strength and his spirit to help us, uh, but we need to listen to him and, and do church the way he tells us to do it, right? And so that's part of why we're listening to these instructions. Today, uh, we're calling the sermon, Cultivate Good Fruit. We're going to look at verses five through nine. It's kind of It's going to be kind of like a one of two part sermon. Next week, he's going to talk about bad leaders. This week, he's going to talk about good leaders. And we're framing that with cultivating good fruit. Fruit is often used as a theme scripturally for a healthy spiritual life and spiritual maturity. So what does it look like to cultivate good fruit, good spiritual fruit, good spiritual maturity in our community? This last summer in June of 2019 in Bihar, India, 97 children died from eating bad fruit. 97 children ate fruit from the lychee tree, which some of you might be familiar with. It's more common in uh, Asia than it is here in the West. But it's a fruit that kind of looks like a strawberry, grows on a tree, high in vitamin C. It's sweet, a little bit tart. It's supposed to be delicious, but it killed 97 children. The reason is, is that the lychee fruit, like a lot of fruits and vegetables, has a low amount of a poison within it. And we have a lot of fruits like that, right? Where like if you ate 500 of them, it would kill you, but eating a couple is no big deal, right? The lychee fruit has a glucose inhibitor, a blood sugar lowerer within it. This chemical that lowers your blood sugar inhibits your body's ability to process sugar. And it usually doesn't hurt people, right? But these were poor little kids who had not eaten. So they had empty stomachs. They were already malnourished. So this fruit that normally wouldn't hurt someone who's really big and strong hurt the least of these, right? It's just one more example of how we got to be careful about what we take in. And this example is played out again and again throughout scripture, that there are things out there that can hurt us and there are things out there that can feed us. And Jesus uses this picture for false teaching and spiritual leadership. And Jesus says this in Matthew 7. We're going to get to to our passage in just a minute. But in Matthew 7, Jesus says, Beware of false teachers who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruits. Jesus says a good leader has healthy fruit. A bad leader has bad fruit. He goes on. This is in Matthew 7. He says, Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from a thistle bush? No. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree 
bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So I want to start off, again, before, this is a long introduction, before we get to our text, I want to start out by recognizing some of you have, have eaten the poison fruit, right, of bad leadership. Some of you have been poisoned. Some of you have been hurt, and I am sorry. I've heard so many of your stories, they, br- they break my heart. Um, you've been hurt by bad leaders, and it happens again and again. And this can cause us to kind of veer off, I think, in a couple of directions, We're still maybe interested in Jesus, but we begin to distrust the church. We begin to wonder if this is really God's plan. And I just want to clarify to you that uh, God does not like the bad leaders that have hurt you and that it was wrong. It was a bad thing. And I just want to encourage you to not give up on God's plan, which is the church, which is people showing other people about the hope that we have in Jesus. And in our text today, it's going to say that the church should be led by healthy people that love Jesus and aren't going to hurt and abuse others. So we just got to recognize as we talk about the church and church not being what we think it is and what church should be, we have to recognize that a lot of people have been hurt by churches not being what they're supposed to be. And we have to admit that. We have to confess that as church people. We shouldn't make it like us against them, right? Because yeah, the church really has hurt people. And so we desperately want to not be that kind of church. We, we want to help people. We don't want to hurt other people. A couple of places that I think this veers off. One is, um, if you've been hurt by men, uh, you can quickly give up on the idea of male leadership. And so just a little caveat, I know that um, not everybody agrees on leadership and what that should look like, but at our church... We have male elders and male pastors, and we encourage men to lead in the home. But we recognize that the reason you might not trust that concept is because you've been hurt by bad men. And so what we would argue is that the solution to that is not to tell men not to lead anymore, but to tell men to be better men. And that's what we're working on. That's our project here. And we can, uh, I had to say this in the other service as well, I would love to like nerd out with you about how churches should be led and what we believe about all these things. But I want to kind of focus what this church, uh, what this text focuses on is good leadership and healthy fruit and maturity in people's lives, right? So I want to focus on that, but I just kind of wanted to start off by saying we recognize that you've been hurt and that might make you doubt this whole thing, but don't throw it out the window, right? I think a lot of times when we talk about male leadership, there are two extremes that often happens with bad male leadership. One is just complete abdication. Men don't lead at all. They just play video games. That's not the solution, right? The other extreme is dominance, abuse, patriarchy. That's not the solution either. We would say that in uh, the scope of human history, we plant ourselves right in the middle, which would say that men and women are equal before God, have equal value before God, but for whatever reason, God calls on men to lead in the church and the home. And the way that that should be done is servant leadership. Jesus washed his disciples' feet. We should be the one throwing ourselves in harm's way to serve and love others. And that's what we believe the solution is. So you don't have to agree with all of that to come to our church. And we have more of that written in our documents, our constitution, and all that stuff. Um, We accept you as you are. A lot of us have different ideas on these things. And like I said, I'd be glad to talk to you more about that offline. Another thing that often happens, um, forget male-female stuff, but we just give up on church altogether, right? I mentioned that a little bit 
uh, earlier, and I would encourage you not to give up on the idea of organization altogether. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at this text and say, this is the standard of how the organization should be led, right? These are the leaders that Paul is pointing to, but it's also the standard for all of us, right? If we are aspiring towards spiritual maturity, then the whole thing's going to be healthier, right? The more healthy you are, the more healthy I'm going to be. The more you're going to, in a healthy way, hold me accountable as a leader of this church, hold our elder board accountable, hold our other pastors accountable. The more you're healthy, the more we're going to be healthy. And so we're all seeking to follow the instructions in this text that are really about leadership as it talks about cultivating this healthy fruit in our lives. Okay. Sorry for the long introduction. What was that? That was an eight minute introduction. Okay. I'm now going to read our text. It's Titus 1, 5 through 9. Titus 1, 5 through 9. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So as I said, this is kind of two parts. He's going to talk today about the model of healthy, um, godly living and then next week, talk about the bad examples of bad leaders, right? So we'll get to that next week. Um, he starts off saying that this is the whole reason that he left Titus in Crete. He says in our text, to put what remained into order. The phrase is to straighten out what was unfinished, right? So basically, there's a mess in Crete, just like in Colleen, Texas, just like in Las Vegas, just like in New York, just like in Rio de Janeiro, Right? Wherever human beings congregate and live together, it's a mess. And so Paul is saying, the way you're going to straighten that out is with healthy leaders. We're going to cultivate fruitfulness, spiritual fruitfulness in people's lives, and that's going to help straighten out the mess of all of us people being all messed up, right? We're going to work together. We're going to be Jesus' hands and feet in the world. That's what he calls his church to be. Let me pray for us, and then we'll look at the text in more detail. God, we ask for your help. We recognize our brokenness. Lord, I recognize how I've been hurt, how others have been hurt by bad leaders, and it just causes us to doubt the whole thing. So God, help us to renew um, our trust in your plan, which is the church, which is people following you and working together in unity to honor your purposes in the world, to point people to hope in you, to love and serve each other. God, help us to see that vision, help us to carry it out. We pray that your Holy Spirit would empower us to do this because we know we cannot do this on our own, God. We need you. So help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So kind of two tracks we're going to be going down. The whole time you're going to be thinking about, does Dave measure up, right? <laughs> like, is the elder board at our church like this? Are the pastors like this, right? Do they measure up to the standard of leadership? And that's completely fair. It's one of the painful things of leadership, but it's also a right and good thing that I would lay my life before you and you would um, analyze and look at our life, right? But the other thing that I think is really more helpful 
is that you'd be thinking for yourself, and I'd be thinking for myself, like, what are the next steps of spiritual fruitfulness in my own life? How am I going to cultivate fruitfulness? Galatians 5.22 talks about depending on the Spirit, on the Holy Spirit, produces gospel fruit in our lives. So how's that going to happen in my life? I think that's the ultimate question that we're looking at. And Paul's going to divide it up into three sections here. He's going to talk about being above reproach in two ways. At first, he's going to say, first of all, that looks like something in our families, right? He talked about children and husbands and wives and all that. And then it's going to look like something in our habits. So we're going to look at healthy families, cultivating the good fruit of uh, a good family, um, good habits. And then finally, we're going to look at teaching. Because in the end, leaders are required to teach. That's one of the things that marks the church out from other community organizations. We love all the other community organizations in town, but without the gospel message, we're not really a church anymore. That's what kind of maintains our status as different than other community organizations. And so the teaching is important as well. So we've got to have good fruit in the area of families, habits, and teaching. Okay? So the first one we're going to look at is cultivating healthy families. How do we cultivate healthy families? So he started off in verse 5 saying, this is why I left you here, to appoint these kinds of people. And he uses this specific term, elders. Elders in every town as I directed you. Um, elder is one of the words for church leaders. There's several words used interchangeably in the scriptures. Elder has a connotation of older, right? It's not the exact same word as older, but it, it's a variation on the word older. So kind of like in our culture, we have a senior in high school which is going to mean the mature high schooler, but we also talk about senior citizens, which means somebody a lot more old than, than the senior high school, right? So we have words like that ourselves too that just kind of means the senior position within an organization. Elder has that meaning, so it means the leader, and it also has the connotation of a group. So we are one of those churches that really believes in plurality of leadership, right? Like the idea that I'm not by myself, but there's a team of us working together. And again, you can read all the details. I'm really not going to make a case for like how we do leadership at our church in the specifics because every denomination has different quirks and twists and turns on how we do that. Um, and I would love to talk to you more about that, right? I'm, I'm a theology nerd and I could talk for hours about it, but I don't think that's the best thing for us right now. So if you want to talk more about it, we can, but just know there is the, the connotation of a group. There's the connotation of a council when it talks about elders. It's going to use other terms later on in our text. And he's going to say, first of all, they've got to have their family together. Their family has to be healthy, right? Look at verse 6. It says, this is one of the ways they're above reproach. Husband and one wife, children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Okay, big words we'll explain. First one, above reproach, means blameless, means there are no charges against this person. So probably a real literal sense we could say, probably not the best idea to hire a pastor or to appoint an elder board member if they've got like open legal charges against them, right? We probably want to sort that out before we bring them on board. So that would be like a real literal in the weeds way to take it. But in context, I think it means more than that. It means like this general character of their life because he's going to use it twice. He's going to say above reproach and then talk about family. And then later he's going to say above reproach and talk about the other habits of your life in the community. So I think he's talking about a general character uh, track record of faithfulness, right? And he explains it here, I mean, with his family. Look at verse 6, the husband of one wife. That Greek phrase is literally a one-woman man. Are you known for loving the ladies or being a faithful husband, right? Like, what are you known for? Scripture, and a lot of you, this may actually be a surprise. If you grew up religious, you've heard this before. 
But Scripture holds up this model of one man and one woman for life, a lifetime of faithfulness. And that is not easy. Some would argue it's not even natural, but by God's Spirit, we can do that. We can aspire to that kind of maturity, which produces stable homes and stable families. Again, it's not easy, but it's something we are aspiring to, that God is growing us up into. So when you look at church leaders, you should say, that should be a one-woman man. Also, it's something you should aspire to. We should all aspire to in our own spiritual growth. We should aspire to faithfulness. Are you aspiring to that in your own life? Are you growing in faithfulness in your own life? These standards are repeated in 1 Timothy 2, 1 Timothy 3, 1 Timothy 5. Um, I would say the standards of marriage are repeated all throughout the Bible, right? But it's something we aspire to. That doesn't mean we never fail, right? Even to go back to blameless and above reproach, we know that blameless and we know that above reproach cannot mean sinless, right? How do we know that? Well, because the rest of scripture is clear that all have sinned. Summarized real pointedly in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No human being is without sin except for Jesus. And so ultimate blamelessness is a supernatural reality where Jesus took the blame for us on the cross. And so we can stand before God blameless because he has absorbed the wrath of God for us and he gives us his perfection. We stand covered and cloaked in the righteousness of Christ, right? And so what that looks like is for those of us that are aspiring to faithfulness with our spouse and being good parents, we know that it doesn't mean we never make a mistake. And some of you have made huge mistakes, right? Like I've, I've counseled with you and we're trying to put our lives back together. And I just want to encourage you, if, if on the track to aspiring to stability and faithfulness, you, you fall off the horse, you fail, then repent, accept God's forgiveness and go back to aspiring to his original plan. Okay? So it's not about making you feel guilty if you failed because at some level we've all failed. And granted, some failures are generally or genuinely bigger than others. That is true. Sometimes it causes more ripple effects, right? But we all can be forgiven, and we all want to aspire to faithfulness. We all want to get back on that horse and continue to go forward towards cultivating healthy families. So husband and one wife, one woman man, the same phrase is used for women that are put on the widow's list in 1 Timothy 5. She's a one man, woman, you know, so it's this idea of, of faithfulness. Um, and so this standard is a really important standard for us. One of my favorite illustrations of this standard is Robertson McQuilkin. Um, here's a picture of Robertson McQuilkin. He passed away a few years ago. Um, that's his wife uh, up in the upper corner there. And I share his story because he was a spiritual leader. He was a pastor and a missionary who then became a Bible college president and then a seminary president huge seminary and Bible college called Columbia International University, somewhere in the South. I can't remember where it is, but um, very influential. And back at like 1990, many years ago, his wife got early onset Alzheimer's and she was really struggling. And he was leading this huge organization, right? He was training up more spiritual leaders. He's preaching the gospel. He's doing important ministry, right? He's helping lots and lots of people but his wife is struggling and she's kind of falling apart and she's losing her mind literally. And some days uh, he would go to work in his car and she would wonder where he is. And she would just walk to his office five miles away, barefoot. She'd get there 
with bloody feet, confused, like she just wanted to be with him. And he realized, really, the only way for her to be happy at this point in her life is to be with me, for me to take care of her. And he recognized that he had made a promise to care for her that came before his work as a seminary college and president. And a lot of people at the time were like, man, this is crazy. You're giving up this influential ministry, right? Don't you want to serve more people instead of just serving this one person? He's like, I made a vow to care for her. And that should be at the heart of who we are as people. We often look out at all these opportunities of ministry and we should see our family as coming first. Our family comes first. Here's the amazing thing. He gave up his influential position, right? To serve as his wife. And now that example, I think, has had a bigger effect than him continuing in his normal position. Because now his story is being told, right? Young pastors and missionaries that were training under him and others that heard about it were like, whoa, I can't believe this guy did this. And it, it rocked our world. Young men like me coming up in ministry saying, okay, that's what, that's what spiritual maturity looks like, is caring for your wife first before your big influential ministry. And so this is one of our values as people say that. Get your... Get your priorities straight, right? You care for your family first. I want to recognize some of you are not married. Well, you are aunts and uncles and brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. Help others care for their family, right? Encourage them in this effort because it's not easy. And we need your encouragement. He goes on and talks about children, right? Being a parent. He says, children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Um, I want to work my way backwards. Debauchery and insubordination, military guys, you know insubordination, right? Um, That just literally means rebellion, not doing what you're told. Debauchery is a bigger word, just kind of means wildness. It has a connotation of uh, immorality. It's just kind of being out of control. And, And so he's saying, this guy's kids, spiritual maturity, the leaders of our community should kind of have their kids somewhat in order, right? Again, it it can't mean perfect because nobody's perfect. Those of you that have kids, you know that, right? It can't mean that, but it does mean a general track record of having your stuff together. There are other language, parallel language in the other pastoral epistles that say, you know, he's got to manage his household well, otherwise he can't manage, you know, God's organization. And so there's this sense that that's what we're aspiring to is is having our children in a basic uh, sense of being under control. It says children are believers, and that's that's arguable translation-wise, Uh, You'll see it uh, printed differently in different translations because the word has at its root faith, but it can mean having faith or being faithful. It can be translated either way. So I think, again, it's a genuine uh, or general character of are your kids basically, you know, functional and obedient or are they completely terrible, insane nightmares, right? Like, which is it? So again, we don't want to hold spiritual leaders to the standard of their child never makes a mistake. You know, that's one extreme, but there's this other extreme of just like giving them a pass, whatever, kids will be kids. You know, you got to have your house in order. As I think about this for parents, as we aspire to lead our children well and non-parents, uncles and aunts in the body of Christ, this is the two poles that I think we want to think about is discipline and delight. You're probably better at one than the other, Right. Like some of you, you were maybe raised by hippies, and so you're swinging the other way, and you want to have discipline and order in your home, right? Um, Some of you were raised in a really hard, strict environment, so you're like, I'm going to be my kid's best friend, and when they want candy, they're going to get candy, right? And so you're like swinging way hard on the delight side. We're called to do both. We've got to do both, or our kids will be malformed and confused, right? We need a delight in them. They need to know that we love them. Do your kids know 
that you love them? Do your students, if you're a teacher, know that you delight in them and that you think they are uniquely made in the image of God and there's something special and wonderful about them and about the way God made them? Do you treasure them? Celebrate them? The other side is, do you believe in discipline? Do you set boundaries? Do you say no? Do you believe in the old-fashioned idea of, of moderated discomfort and suffering for the glory of God, right? Kids need to be stopped. They can't do everything they want to do. They need to be made uncomfortable. They need to have boundaries put around them. Pursue those, those twin poles of discipline, but also delight. Otherwise, our kids are going to be nuts and out of control. Um, another example of putting family first, I think is a really beautiful example. A guy that wrote two of my favorite books, his name is Paul Miller. He's a Bible teacher. He writes books. He wrote a book called A Praying Life. I highly recommend. He wrote another book called Love Walked Among Us, which again, I would highly recommend. Now, what's interesting about this guy is his dad is a very famous and influential seminary professor, but he hardly talks about his dad in his books. You know what he talks about in his books? You know, the, like, the crucible, the laboratory of where he learned the great stuff he is teaching others about who God is and how to make sense of the scriptures and God's grace for us? Well, he talks primarily about his wife and his kids. And even more specifically, he talks about a special needs daughter that he has who's had you know, incredible difficulties and pain in life. Those are the people that's taught him and revealed to him who God is as he's teaching the Bible in these books. So it's just another great example of how God teaches us through being faithful to the people he's placed in our um, immediate uh, family. So be faithful to the people that God has put around you. Um, how can we grow in this area? Um, men, if you want to grow as a husband, number one, uh, put down the video games. I think that's a great place to start, right? Uh, maybe just limit them to, you know, uh, what's a good limitation, maybe? I don't even know. I don't play video games. Limit them, okay? Maybe stop altogether. Here's another one. Listen to your wife. Talk to her. Um, I know this isn't a problem with all men, right? But I talk to enough of you to know that it's a problem with most of you. So pay attention. Ask good questions. Understand her. When you read Ephesians 5, it's clear um, from human psychology the history of the world, and the Bible, that men and women are different. If you don't believe that, I'm sorry, we can talk afterwards. But <laughs> men and women are different, and we don't always understand each other. In Ephesians 5, it says the man is to take initiative in the same way that Jesus took initiative and entered our world. So if you find yourself at a checkmate, at a standstill, we don't understand each other, we don't get each other, guess whose job it is to go first? Men. You are to leave your heavenly perfection of manhood <laughs> and enter into the confusion of, of your spouse's world, right? You are to seek to love her and understand her. You're to enter her world. Wives, you should enter your husband's world as well, okay? Caveat, I'll say that. But Ephesians 5 makes it real clear. Men take the first step, right? Don't just stand there waiting and say, no, you make the first move. No, you make the first move. Men, take the first step. Make the first move. You need to enter into your wife's world. That's part of what it looks like to then have this Ephesians 5 kind of marriage. The Ephesians 5 marriage is one that Paul says is like a billboard that shows the world what God is like. It's a billboard that says God is a God of love and we can trust him. And when you have a healthy marriage, it's then reflected to the world who Jesus is. 
the world sees him. So go read Ephesians 5. Um, I would also say, men and women, apprentice yourself to couples that seem to kind of know what they're doing, okay? Um, older folks that are farther along in their faith, this is really important. Uh, this has been really helpful to my wife and I over the years. Just having godly mentors or people we just kind of, we just follow around like a puppy dog. Like they seem to know Jesus and love each other and love their kids. So we're just going to kind of follow them along and try to learn from them, right? We've gotten in Sunday school classes with people, gone to counseling uh, retreats and events and read books, just tried to learn from other people, ask them questions, take them out to lunch and just quiz them over how they do it, right? Nobody's perfect. Nobody's got it all figured out, but there are going to be people around you that are a, f- a couple of steps ahead of you, right? They're a little more spiritually mature than you are, and you can apprentice yourself to them and learn from them. Okay, I think we need to move on. But the big idea is that we are to cultivate healthy families. And the more that we are a church of healthy families, the more we'll have a leadership with healthy families as well. Continue to pursue that. The next thing we're going to cultivate are good habits. Cultivating good habits. Um, And depending on the commentator that I read on this, some people talked about it as personal disciplines. Some people talk about this section, verses 7 and 8, as like your community interaction. And I would say really both are present in this text. It's like if you're a leader with good habits, then you're going to be more effective in impacting your community. Okay, so we'll see both here, but I'm focusing on the word habits. Look at verse 7. He says, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach, right? So he's coming back to the same word again, must be blameless, must be above reproach. And then he's going to fill it in with the details of these good habits. But a word about overseer, that's the Greek word episkopos. So if you've ever been Episcopal, that's where the Episcopals got the name from. It's also translated as bishop. It means overseer. So he started off with elder. So you've got elders, seniors, council members that are this kind of leader. Now he's using another word, right? It seems to me that Paul doesn't really care that much what we call the leaders of our church because he uses like five different words for it. We've got bishop, we've got elder, we've got pastor. Here he uses steward. In other places, he uses manager and leader. And so we would say generally that all these words are interchangeable. So again, I'm trying to not too hard make the case for what we believe at our church, which you can find in our constitution. And trust me, I could, I can make the case. I can debate about how the way we do it is the best way, right? But that's secondary to the character of the people that lead the church. That's the most important thing. Do do you see the difference? So like I, I could have the debate about church governance and how it should be run and uh, have seen a lot of different varieties of that. But the issue is our, our personal faith, our maturity. And this word that he uses is a really helpful one that, that gets at the self-perception of a leader. Look at this word, steward. What does steward mean? A steward is like a manager of someone else's house. When my wife and I were newlyweds and doing youth ministry, we would often get this opportunity to do this glorious job called house sitting. Have any of you done house sitting Like you know somebody that has a nice place. If you're really lucky, they have a pool and it's the summertime, right? And it's this gig where you basically like hang out at their house and put chlorine in their pool and feed their dog. It's the best job, right? But you take care of the house because it's not yours, right? When people ask you to house it, they usually do it because they think they can trust you. They think you're going to take care of the house. That's what a steward is. A steward is someone who's taking care of somebody else's stuff, so here's the heart of what this means. Leaders of a church, it's, it's not their church. This is not my church. This is God's church. I'm just kind of like taking care of it for a little while, right? The elder board, we're just kind of taking care of it. The pastors, we're just kind of overseeing. We're just trying to kind of help 
us all love Jesus more, we're stewards. We're house-sitting, okay? There's a movie called Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And Ferris talks his friend into taking his stepdad's fancy sports car out for a spin in the big city. They go go cruising around, and they're going to go eat in a nice restaurant. So they've got to park their car, and they use valet parking. Have you ever done valet parking? Um, It's like the steward idea. It's when someone else takes your car. It's real scary. Let me tell you, I've done it a few times, and you're like, should I trust you with my keys? This sounds weird, right? But you're entrusting this person to take care of your car. In Ferris Bueller's Day Off, it's a bad example, right? Because these valets just, they race the car all over town, right? They abuse it. They use it. They're not good stewards. Well, if we're going to cultivate a culture of healthy habits and good spiritual fruit, we're going to have to see ourselves as stewards, right? As someone who's been entrusted with someone else's stuff. And Jesus uses these parables a lot in Matthew 24 and 25 as well, right? Like those of us that are waiting around for Jesus' return, he says, we should see ourselves as a servant who's in charge of other servants. We're all servants and we're trying to help the other servants instead of seeing ourselves as like, oh, now I'm in charge and I can abuse the other servants and I can get what I want. So this is the attitude we should all have, right? And he says, now it's going to translate in these specifics. Look, uh, the second half of verse seven, he says, this is part of what it looks like for an overseer's God's servant must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. If you've been hurt by a church leader, chances are you were hurt because the church leader was doing one of these things. And so again, our reaction might be, well, it's because that church leader was a man or it's because that church leader belonged to this denomination, or because they had this kind of church government system, that was the problem. Paul would say, these words are the problems. Leaders should not be a drunkard, or arrogant, or quick-tempered, or violent, or greedy for gain. Your leaders shouldn't be that way, and we shouldn't be that way, right? Because again, God is clear that we are all leaders. We are all priests, in the body of Christ. So we believe that there's the difference between leaders and members. I'm one of the leaders of our church. That, that distinction exists, but there is also a sense in which we all have responsibility as God's people. Peter talks about this in his later letter, that we're like a nation of priests. We're a tribe of kings. We are, as leaders, interceding and showing others what Jesus is like, and we should not be arrogant as we do that. We should not be quick-tempered as we do that. We should not be drunkards, right? Life is too hard, so instead of trusting Jesus, we're just going to go drink. Question for you is, what are the sins that are drawing your heart? Which of these sins in this list are the ones that you're drawn towards to rely on, in a sense, instead of relying on Jesus? You got to root your way back to, what's, what's the sin underneath that? And ultimately, for all of these for being arrogant, for being quick-tempered, for being a drunkard, for being violent, for being greedy, for gain. These are all ways in which we're not trusting Jesus, right? We're trusting money, or we're trusting our own power, and that's why we're violent, or we're trusting control, and that's why we're pushing people around. What is it for you, and what's the area that God needs to grow you in in 2020? Now, hopefully, uh, my friend, our, actually our worship pastor, says this a lot. He says, it's not enough to have an anti-strategy, but you have to have a strategy, right? An anti-strategy is don't do that. A strategy is do this instead, right? And Paul gives us a strategy, not just the anti-strategy. He doesn't just say, don't do the bad things. He says, do this. Verse 8, be hospitable 
a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. So it's a new year. Which of these things is God calling on you to work on? We can't do any of them by ourselves. We need God's spirit to help us. But with his spirit, by the power of the cross, he can help you grow in these areas. In which of these areas do you need to grow? Hospitality is a beautiful word. It literally means loving strangers or loving outsiders. So is there someone that God's put around you that he's saying, I want you to, I want you to love this person. Don't, they don't belong to anybody, right? How can you care for them? In the first century, it usually meant like caring for them by feeding them. I think in our culture, it can look, by, look like, like slowing down and lifting your face up from a phone and paying attention to someone, right? Like giving someone the gift of time and, and listening and friendship. But who are the people around you that God is saying, hey, that, that person's kind of on their own. They need, they need some care. They need some help. Who, who would that person be in 2020 or that group of people? So one of his strategies is to be hospitable. That's what he got, calls God's people to. So it's a requirement for a leader But again, throughout the New Testament, it's something that all of us are called to as God's people. He also says, be a lover of good, be self-controlled, be upright, be holy, be disciplined. And again, the way that we do these things is by clinging more and more to Jesus. The more we trust him, the more we'll be self-controlled, right? Our lack of self-control, giving over over to our anger, to our addiction, is saying, I trust those things as a solution more than I trust Jesus, We have a great ministry called Celebrate Recovery. I'd love to invite you to plug in with that that meets on Monday nights. If you have particular hurts, habits, hangups that you're having a hard time moving through, it's a structured way to help you to cling more to Jesus and and let go of those bad habits. But I would say even more than that, all of our ministries ideally should be doing that. They should be helping us to confess, man, I've, I've been trusting in money, but I need to forget that and trust in Jesus. I've been trusting in relationships. I need to set that aside and just devote myself more to the Lord and grow in Him. Whatever it is that we're struggling in, we want to help each other together uh, to grow in next steps. So we talk about the three-step process of gathering and worship. That's part of what we do when we worship together is just helping recenter our minds on Jesus and not on all the other things that we might run to. Serving on a team, helping us to make others a priority instead of ourselves. That's a, a form of hospitality as a congregation. As you serve on our Sunday morning teams, you're helping us be hospitable to the community. And then finally, joining a group, growing with other people. Say, so I'm going to get in a group where I can admit my junk and we can pray for each other and try to cling to Jesus together. Another thing that we could work on in the new year for cultivating good habits is a Bible reading plan and a prayer plan. I want to encourage you to really focus on one of those in the new year, to be ingesting more of God's word or to be spending more time talking to him. Obviously, we want you doing both, but I'm saying kind of beef up one of those areas. I mentioned already the book of Praying Life. Um, we've got Bible reading plans that you can get in the hallway. The, the version Bible app has a lot of Bible version plans where you can you know, read through certain plans or you can listen to the scriptures in different ways. So we'd encourage you to take those next steps in the new year. Okay, last thing. We're to cultivate life-giving teaching. Life-giving teaching. So again, all of God's people are to be the people that, that sing the praises of God, right? That are like, I don't understand all the details, but I was blind and now I can see. I can't explain everything, but I can tell you that God is good and Jesus has saved me. So we should all be those that can give this kind of life-giving teaching. Leaders in particular cannot be leaders unless they fit this qualification. So there are a lot of leader qualifications that are thrown out in scriptures. 
Um, sometimes we just talk about deacons and elders as kind of two classes of leadership. And they're basically the same qualifications, right? Godly spiritual maturity. But the one that separates elders or pastors is the teaching thing, right? You've got to be able to teach this good stuff. He uses this phrase in verse 9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. So personally, he's got to be holding firmly to it, like gripping onto it with all his might. He's got to be desperately clinging to the word as taught by the apostles. And then he says, so that he may be able to give instruction, it's literally encourage, in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. And so a positive and a negative, what it looks like, healthy teaching, is encouraging people in sound doctrine and rebuking those who oppose it, right? And and so we're going to spend more time next week talking about rebuking. It'll be a great sermon on rebuking. You'll love it. Come back. Uh, It's going to talk mainly about false teachers and how things get weird. Um, But I want to talk a little more about this encouraging and sound doctrine. First of all, what does sound doctrine mean? Um, Sound can mean two things in English. It's spelled the same way, but it's really two different meanings. Sound can mean like stuff that comes in your ear, noise. It can also mean healthy, right? And so it comes from two different languages. You know, English is a mishmash of a lot of languages. So there's this root of like sonorous or sonora. There's one root for sound that is noise. There's another root. It's the German word gesund. (laughs) I hope I said that right. Gesund, which is the root of healthy. So that's why sound can mean two different things. We've borrowed from two different languages there. So have you ever heard someone say gesundheit when somebody sneezes? What you're saying, if you say that, I grew up saying that as a little kid, Um, I think now I just say, God bless you. But as a kid, we would always say, Gesundheit. And what you're saying is healthiness to you, okay? That's what you're saying. So sound doctrine is healthy teaching. We need healthy teaching. What does that mean, guys? That means that there is non-healthy teaching. So the requirement is not that a guy can stand up with the Bible and yammer on, right? That's not the requirement. It's healthy teaching, life giving teaching. Jesus talks about this so much. Who are the people that he fights with the most in the gospels? Go back and read it. It's the Bible teachers. Their names are Pharisees. And so you might, you know, might go over your head because it's like special weird name. Who are these weird people that Jesus was mad at? It was the Bible teachers. It was the seminary professors. Jesus was always banging heads with them because he was like, you're teaching the Bible in a way that loads heavy burdens on people. It's legalism. It's pretending that you're better than other people because you keep this law, but you don't keep the weightier matters of the law. Go back and read Matthew 23. He's all over them. There's a way to teach this book where you imply that you're better than other people and that you're more able to do the right things than they are. And you're then implying secondarily that none of us really need Jesus. People just need to be more like that Bible teacher, right? Here's a good measure as you're evaluating church leadership. If a preacher week after week is telling you to be like him, be like him, right? It's not always bad. Sometimes Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. Examples are fine. But there's this problem where teachers are always saying, I'm the one that's got it all figured out. Look at me. I don't make mistakes. I don't really need Jesus. I'm just better than other people, right? It's possible to teach the Bible that way. And that's the wrong way to teach the Bible. Jesus condemns it again and again. And so Paul, throughout Titus, will say there is a healthy teaching that focuses people on the grace that we have in Jesus Christ, that makes Jesus the center of this book, that makes Jesus the hero and not the Bible teacher. 
He's the champion. In Luke chapter 24, he talks to the people on the road to Damascus, and he says he's the whole point of the Old Testament. He says the whole Old Testament is about him being a sacrifice, dying on the cross for our sins, giving us his resurrection power. He says that's what the Old Testament is about. Do you see that in Scripture? Last week, I put these books out, but I forgot to mention them to everybody. These are a few books that I think are helpful in in letting us see that grace is the central message of the Bible, that Jesus is the central point of the Bible. And I want to recommend these to you. There are four different ones just on the subject of Jesus and his centrality and his grace. Um, The Prodigal God by Tim Keller, Transforming Grace by Jerry Bridges, The Gospel-Centered Life by Thune and Walker, and The Cure by John Lynch. Um, They're all kind of different writing styles, different authors, but they all have the same point, and it's the healthy teaching that Jesus is the center. He is our only hope. And so don't read the Bible or teach the Bible in a way that makes you the hero. We want to read the Bible and teach the Bible in such a way that makes Jesus the hero. Do we want to obey it? Yes, but we obey the laws and the rules of the Bible knowing that Jesus obeyed it first that he's our champion and our only hope is resting in what he's already accomplished for us. And because he loves us through dying for us, through living for us, that's why we're motivated to take next steps of obedience. And so Jesus is central to this message. Paul says it this way in 2 Timothy 2. He says, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You see what Paul is saying there? He's like, be strengthened in the grace, God's kindness. He doesn't say, Timothy, be strengthened in how awesome you are and how much better you are than the people you're leading. He says, Timothy, be strengthened in the grace that God has for you. And then entrust that to faithful people that will entrust it to other people. I've got a picture here of the baton. I got to run track in high school, never very well, but enjoyed doing it. And there are these relays where you'd pass the baton, right? And the baton fell, the race is over for you. You've lost. And so we've got to pass that baton. The baton is the message of Jesus Christ. We are to receive that grace of who he is. God is for us. And then we've got to pass that on to other people. And that is something we should all aspire to. So again, questions are how... Will you grow in that area in the new year? How will you personally grow in understanding that God doesn't love you by how well you perform, but God loves you because of what Jesus did for you? So I encourage you to get one of these books or just to memorize scriptures that help keep that in the forefront of your mind. Scriptures like Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, uh, passages like Romans 8, passages that show us that God is for us in Christ. And any obedience that comes out of our life as a result of what he did for us first. So we want to wrap up here as we think about what it looks like to cultivate this good fruit in our lives. We, we talked about the, the importance of family, putting our family first. We talked about the picture of the healthy habits that we have and how that impacts the culture around us. And then finally, the good teaching. No matter where we are in life, um, God blesses singleness and says that God is going to use you help other families to be healthy, right? If you're a single mom, God can use you to pour grace into your children and impact the world. If you're a traditional family, husband and wife and 2.5 kids and the picket fence, right? God wants you to pour grace into that family, but he also wants it to trickle out to healthy habits in your life and the way you impact your community. And he also wants that to trickle down into the teaching, the speech 
about who Jesus is. These are all ways that we express good fruit. And I want to just finish with the picture of this holding on. It says, hold firmly to the truth as it was taught to you. Hold firmly to this message. When we came to plant this church 13 years ago, uh, our friends from our small group at the other church gave us a party. We went out to the lake and we had a party and one of the friends had jet skis. Have you ever been on jet skis? Man, jet skis are fun. They're terrifying, but fun. And so I'm driving this jet ski, leading this jet ski, whatever you call it. Do you drive it? Steering? I don't know. Anyway, I'm in the front of the jet ski and my little three and a half year old is riding on the back, right? And probably of our kids, she's one of the more adventurous ones and she loves it. She's 18 now, but she's tiny. She's three or four. And I make it real clear to her that her job is to hold on to me desperately. Hold firmly to your daddy or you will not survive, right? (laughs) And so she has a lot of fun, man. She loves it. She is just giggling and laughing and screaming with delight. She's having so much fun, but she is also holding on to me desperately. And I share that image. I want that image to be burned in your brain, not to think of the image of me as the leader on the jet ski, but the image is we are all that three-year-old clinging onto our daddy. That's what we're called to do. He says, hold firmly to the message you've been taught. And the message is, yeah, we sinned, but God adopted us. He forgave us. He brought us back into his family and we are to cling to him. We are to hold firmly to him desperately with all of our might. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you love us and you give us grace in Jesus. Help us to, to cling to you. Even as we hit waves, even as we hit high winds, as we hit unsure things, we're not sure how we're going to get through. We're going to We're going to cling to you. We're going to hold on to you, our daddy that loves us. Grow our faith, Lord. Help us to see that we can trust you even in this broken world. Help us to cultivate the good fruit of a life that's lived in spiritual dependence on you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.